0: Hello, and welcome to the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast. This is the show for anyone who wants to learn how to think. Your brain was designed to think deeply, but thinking often loses out in the battle for educational efficiency. Real thinking gets pushed to the margins, and eventually abandoned in far too many cases. I know there are many, including some educators, who don't believe that thinking can be taught. My students in my nearly 45 years in higher education, however, regularly told me on course evaluations that I taught them how to think. I believe I can help you with my proven strategies. This season, I'm endeavoring to help you acquire the dispositions that lead to Learner's Mind. All of us were born with Beginner's Mind, which optimized our exploration of the brave new world we were born into. We made enormous progress with Beginner's Mind, mastering concepts and language in just the first few years of our lives. But over time, we tended to shift to the mindset that neuroscientists call exploitation. We knew a good deal, and it was efficient to use our existing knowledge to solve problems. The dilemma is that we lost the inclination to explore in our quest for efficiency. In the bargain, our curiosity withered. Curiosity is the ultimate driver of all learning. Curiosity can operate to a degree within the constraints of exploitation, but it's only when we give curiosity a long leash to explore that we really realize its power. Learner's mind embraces exploration as a regular part of our waking hours. The adult mind can utilize the power of exploration without falling victim to the inefficiency of unregulated curiosity this purposeful toggling between exploration and exploitation is the rhythm that you must intentionally cultivate if you're going to develop learner's mind not convinced i'm not surprised but join me And let me see if I can change your mind. Your adult life has been dominated by mining your existing knowledge. That's exploitation. And this is especially true when you're under time pressure to produce. But think about when a solution eluded you as the clock continued to tick. Your existing knowledge base was failing you what to do. I was in this situation in graduate school during my doctoral research. The solution to a pivotal problem in my experimental design continued to elude me month after month. Didn't seem to matter how much intense effort I put into solving the problem. I kept running up against a brick wall. The germ of the solution finally came, unbidden, when I was mowing grass on a warm Saturday afternoon. It's not real unusual. Uh, Here's another instance. One of my nephews, who is a graphic designer, told me of a time when he and a group of colleagues were faced with a looming deadline and went to a local park and spent an hour swinging on the swings. Were they in denial? trying to avoid the problem? I think you know the answer. A change of environment may be the needed catalyst to, quote, think outside the box, end quote. Many of our best ideas, in fact, come to us in the shower or while we're doing something else trivial that doesn't demand significant intellectual resources. Writer's block is a classic illustration of the limitations of mining your existing store of ideas. Doubling down on exploitation seldom wins the day. Turning the screws by intensifying your focus on what you already know is more successful at producing tension headaches than solving problems. A well-known quotation is, Writing is easy. All you do is stare at a blank sheet of paper until drops of blood form on your forehead, variously attributed to uh, Gene Fowler or sometimes to Douglas Adams. A better approach in writing, for instance, is to periodically pivot to exploration The author J.K. Rowling of uh, Harry Potter fame acknowledges the city of Edinburgh in Scotland where she's lived since 1993 as catalytic to her writing. She said this, "Uh, Edinburgh is very much home for me and is the place where Harry evolved over seven books and many, many hours of writing in its cafes. Although Rowling Denies specific influences, there are aspects of Edinburgh Castle, tombstones and Greyfriars' Kirk graveyard, and the layout of certain streets that have strong echoes in her books. It's not unlikely that these were at least unconscious inspirations. Even writing in a cafe keeps a writer from getting too deep into exploitation. The regular coming and going of customers and the activity of the staff can also catalyze exploration. A new 2022 book by A.J. Jacobs, uh, a best-selling author the New York Times Review of Books, the book called The Puzzler, challenges its readers to develop what Jacobs calls Puzzler's Mind, I would maintain that puzzler's mind is one of the dispositions of learner's mind. Judge for yourself. Here's how Jacobs describes puzzler's mind. Quote, The puzzler mindset is all about curiosity, about everything, about politics, other people's experiences, literature, life. One of the many lessons I learned from years of doing puzzles is that it's much easier to solve a puzzle or a problem when your mind is flexible and when you're in a kind of playful mood. The key is asking questions instead of having a predetermined opinion. There are echoes here of the last podcast of Watson and Crick in their freewheeling model building that led to the structure of DNA and ultimately to the Nobel Prize. Flexibility and a playful mind coupled with insatiable curiosity in pursuit of answering a question is a good way to summarize the power of exploration. If you haven't heard them yet, uh, I invite you to listen to the previous podcast where I've broken down curiosity into its component parts. Podcast one dealt with the need to pay attention. Podcast two with the need to zero in on what you are paying attention to, to perceive, to have an awareness of the nature of the thing. And then in the last podcast, we talk about the need to focus, to actually deal with specifics of what it is you're looking at and what you're looking for. Puzzler mindset adds to these the desire to solve a puzzle. The puzzle may be a problem, a search for a cause, or search for an explanation. The puzzler, Jacob says, is, quote, asking questions instead of trying to validate a predetermined opinion. End quote. The best questions are usually how or why. Questions are so important that the next season of this podcast will actually be devoted to exploring questions. Without a doubt, our minds are wired to want to solve problems. Why else would games be so popular? Think about it. We use leisure time, discretionary time, to solve crossword puzzles, Sudoku and Wordle. Those are intrinsic parts of many people's daily routines. Chess and checkers and card games and board games galore occupy leisure time. And games are often the focal point of parties. I'm not personally motivated by games or word puzzles, mainly because others are so competitive over what are often games of chance or recall of trivia. I do succumb, however, to a good jigsaw puzzle. Jigsaw puzzles are a good analogy for the dynamic that is learner's mind and the disposition that today we're calling puzzler's mind as part of learner's mind. Efficient assembly of a jigsaw puzzle involves both focused exploration and exploitation. A recent day-long family celebration for my family saw five family members, four adults and one teen, teaming up to assemble a 1,000-piece puzzle of moderate difficulty in under two hours. No one was watching the clock and we didn't compete. In fact, a good time was had by all. If you do jigsaw puzzles, you probably operate like we did. We start puzzle building by exploring the contents of the puzzle box, of course, looking at the picture on the box, and then looking for patterns among the pieces, edge pieces, blue pieces for ocean or sky, white for clouds, uh, boards and windows of a building or bricks, faces of people. Each is put in a different location on the table. In our case, the five of us each took custody of one set of pieces. Constructing this set, initially, is like exploration mode. As the pieces in each category accumulate sufficiently, we switch into something akin to exploitation mode. That is, We try to fit as many pieces as possible together from our accumulated set. Like cognitive exploitation, we're mining what we already have. And we do this as long as we're making reasonable progress. However, inevitably, after a time, we find it harder and harder to find a home for the pieces that remain in our set that have not yet been joined to the rest, and we then switch back into exploration mode. This time, as we look for pieces of a face or windows in a building, etc., among the unsorted pieces, we typically recognize a few new pieces very quickly as the solution to gaps that we were previously unable to fill. This toggling back and forth between fitting together pieces of our existing collection and stopping to look for new pieces continues and our part of the solved puzzle grows. We may, in fact, begin to see where our section intersects with what someone else has built, and perhaps we can slide our whole section into place. As the gaps in our section are filled it becomes easier to determine what to explore for, and soon there's a mad dash to put the few remaining pieces in place and declare victory. Just this morning, homeschooling with my four year old grandson, we went through this explore exploit rhythm. Joshua was trying to recall words that start with the letter B. B is in boy. An obvious one was the insect that we call a bee. Since he loves nature, we challenged him to draw a bee using a picture as a guide. When that was complete, we talked over the distinctives of a bee, including the head, thorax, and abdomen, including the six legs that make it an insect. We noticed pollen on the body of the bee in the picture, and that led to Joshua's question. What's the pollen for? The reflexive adult answer has to do with plant pollination, and that's certainly important. However, Joshua was looking for something related to the reality that the bee invariably takes some pollen back to the hive is pollen an incidental with no benefit to bees? That's what exploiting the standard narrative about plant pollination might lead us to think. Exploitation would emphasize the bee as a purposeful collector of nectar and an incidental collector of pollen. In going after nectar from many flowers, the bee redistributes pollen and causes cross-pollination, which is essential for genetic diversity in plants, as well as uh, moving pollen from male flowers to female flowers in some species. Exploitation might easily say at this point, bees are pollinators, and that's a very good thing. Case closed. Well, when we pursued this a little further, Joshua guessed that pollen is used by bees to make honey. After all, honey and bees are intricately intertwined. Just ask Winnie the Pooh. Honey is derived from the action of bee saliva on plant nectar. Pollen is not involved. In fact, nutritionally, honey is almost entirely simple sugars. Fructose and glucose, in that order, with some water and minerals. Hmm. Does pollen serve some other purpose? As we explored this question, we quickly learned something else. Pollen contains a significant amount of protein. In one study, 2.5% protein up to a whopping 61% protein. The wide variation is dependent on the type of plant and the health of the plant. Or typical protein values in one extensive study showed pollen containing between 84 and 18.1% protein. Pollen contains a variety of other nutrients, including lipids. Now, bees need proteins and lipids to build their bodies. Sugar alone won't suffice for bees any more than it would for humans. The health of a hive of bees requires good nutrition, and balanced nutrition requires proteins and lipids in addition to sugar. Hmm. Well, if pollen is the main source of nutrients, besides the sugar and the honey, can incidental pollen brought back to the hive meet the need of the hive? And the answer is a resounding no. Bees, in fact, collect large amounts of pollen on purpose. The pollen that sticks to their bodies is brushed by the forelegs, that's the legs by the head, that are moistened with saliva or nectar from the mouth. And these moistened legs brush pollen from hairs on the head, uh, thorax, and abdomen toward the hind legs where there is a polished cavity called the pollen basket, colloquially at least, which is purposefully packed with pollen by the bee. The pollen mass in the basket is secured by a single hair Cross the opening once the basket is full. The pollen in this basket is sometimes called bee bread, or more commonly bee pollen. Bee pollen is packed with nutrients that the bee colony requires, especially nurse bees, to produce more bees to sustain the hive. This is a good illustration of the role of healthy, focused exploration, driven by a good question and curiosity. Without this exploration, we might easily settle for a distorted, superficial view. Exploitation came into play at regular intervals as we worked with an increasingly more complete set of ideas to ask the next question. And to come up with a much better sense of how the anatomy and behavior of bees benefits bees and not just plants. In our journey, we enriched greatly our concept of pollen to include bee nutrition and not just plant heredity. You know, we could easily go further. Pollen is rich in protein, and foreign proteins evoke the strongest allergic responses in humans. If you're allergic to various kinds of environmental pollen, you can blame pollen proteins. As we explore, we continue to find new connections that enlarge our conceptions. Concepts are not static, or at least they should not be. Our earliest memories are usually of events when we were between three and four years of age. The universal inability to remember earlier events is called infantile amnesia. Our inability to remember our early lives is due to the immaturity of our brains and that compromises our framework of concepts. Join me in two weeks, on the next podcast, as we explore concept blindness and what it tells us about how we learn.